for joining us. I'm Diane Rehm. Vladimir Putin cancels a visit to France after disagreements over Syria. An American warship fires cruise missiles at rebel areas in Yemen. And the Haitian government says more than one million people need urgent aid following Hurricane Matthew. Joining me for the International Hour of the Friday News Roundup, Tom Bowman of NPR, Yagani Torbati of Reuters, and David Sanger of the New York Times. And throughout the hour, we'll welcome your calls, questions, comments, 800-433-8850. Send an email to drshow at wamu.org. Follow us on Facebook or send us a tweet. Well, a busy week for all of you. Good to be here. Thank you, Diane. Thanks for having us back. Tom Bum, another deadly weekend. Aleppo with more than 150 killed. Why has this situation deteriorated again? Well, ceasefires have fallen apart. Uh, the Russians and their Syrian allies clearly want to take Aleppo, and they're moving in that direction. Um, you're right. Uh, hundreds more have died. They're actually targeting hospitals, according to John Kerry, which by its definition is a war crime. And once they take Aleppo, which seems highly likely, then most of the country, most of the western part of the country, where most of the population is, is now in the hands, firmly in the hands of the Assad regime and its Russian ally. And at that point, um, they're in, in pretty good shape, <laughs> relatively speaking, about taking part back the uh, largest part of the country. And then when talk turns to, well, how do we move ahead, Russia and Syria can say, it's over. We pr pretty much have the bulk of the country. Why are we negotiating over anything? And is that what's going to happen tomorrow when Russia and the U.S. meet in Switzerland, David? Well, Secretary Kerry, just a week and a half after declaring that we were basically cutting off our contacts with Russia, is uh, going to meet with Sergei Lavrov, his um, his counterpart uh, in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is where much of the Iran deal was negotiated, also with the Russians there. And I don't expect that this is going to be a terribly productive meeting because at this moment, the United States has virtually no leverage for all the reasons that Tom just laid out. President Obama has decided, whether you agree with him or not agree with him, that the U.S. is not going to get involved militarily on the ground and will do a very limited amount in the air. The effort to deconflict with uh, the Russians and ultimately to have a coordinated effort with the Russians fell apart last month. That was negotiated between Mr. Kerry and Mr. Lavrov in early September and fell apart by late September. So at this moment, if you're the Russians and you're looking at this, you're seeing a president who's going to be out of office in three and a half months. You're seeing a president who has not been willing to go commit military resources, despite the fact that Mr. Kerry has made no secret of the fact that he had urged that earlier on. So the Russians have absolutely no interest in doing anything other than run the clock here. And Diagani, French officials have called for a war crimes inquiry into Syria. So how does Russia take that? 
Well, it really shows us the kind of the increasing international isolation of Russia. Um, President Putin was supposed to go to France uh, next week uh, to help kind of open a Russian Orthodox church. Uh, that was canceled when um, when uh, French leader Hollande uh, said that he wanted to scrap the agenda and only talk about Syria. Um, and this sort of, you know, the French and the Russians historically have had a, a better relationship and less fraught relationship than the one between uh, Russia and the United States. So, you know, for it to reach this point where e- the French are even uh, reportedly uh, leading discussions over possible new EU sanctions on Russia over its uh, actions in Syria uh, really shows kind of the depth of uh, of international um, outrage over what's happening in Syria. So Tom, is there any indication that Russia could change its strategy in Syria. Absolutely none. They're going to press ahead, take Aleppo, and again, once Aleppo is taken, they're just going to say to John Kerry, what are we talking about? What are we negotiating over? (laughs) It's over. At that moment, Assad, let's remember here, why did the Russians come in a year and a month ago? They came in because they thought Assad was on the edge of losing power. That was when President Obama came out and said, you know, good luck to the Russians because this is going to be a quagmire. And he may ultimately be right. But for the first year, they accomplished a huge amount with the air power. And the main thing they accomplished is there is no credible threat right now to Assad's rule. And also, by the way, there's talk of war crimes. The French have raised it. So as John Kerry. You need a Security Council approval for some sort of a war crimes investigation. That will never happen with the Russian veto. Um, it could happen someday in the future if there's a new Syrian government and they decide to investigate people. But for the short term, there's absolutely no chance of any war crimes mm-hmm. investigation, even though there seems to be pretty clear evidence that there are war crimes. If you target a hospital or a civilian location, as Secretary uh, Kerry said, that's a war crime. That constitutes absolutely. a war crime. I'm glad you clarified that, Tom. Targeting is a key word. Targeting. And indeed, Russia is certainly in the news in this country also because the FBI is reportedly investigating the hack into John Podesta's email. Is there any evidence, real evidence, that the Russians are behind this? President Obama has said. We believe Russia is involved in this. What's the evidence you got? Right. So the Obama administration officially accused Russia last week of of being behind these hacks. Um, But prior to that, intelligence agencies had said that some of the signatures used by um, the hackers linked back to kind of the known um, activity and known, known signatures of, of Russian hackers. And so that was kind of the link. But for the administration to come out and say it was was a new thing that 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 happened. Um, and, uh, you know, the White House says that 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 the President Obama will decide on a proportional response. We don't exactly know what that is yet. It could be possible sanctions, cyber sanctions. It could be an attack that uh, a cyber attack that we might not ever really find out about that the U.S. commits against Russia. So there's sort of a range of things that they're Right now. What kind of damage could the U.S. do in reverse on Russia? Well, this is a, a fascinating question, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, because it gets to one of the hardest issues in cyber, which is how do you respond and do you respond in kind with another cyber attack <clears throat> or do you um, 
respond by doing something else, as you can is as suggested. So the something else could be economic sanctions, could be um, uh, restrictions on Russians coming to the United States. And, and I think that's actually more likely. You see restrictions on the uh, Russians coming to the United States, some sort of more economic <laughs> sanctions as well. People I talk with in the Pentagon say the last thing you want to do is get into a tennis game with the Russians exactly. over cyber attacks. Exactly. They hit, let's say, uh, John Pettis's emails. You turn off the lights in uh, Putin's dacha or the Kremlin. Um, where, does it, where does it end up? And as people tell me it, who uh, follow this, follow cyber they say, listen, the United States is much more vulnerable to cyber attacks. You could take down ATMs. You could take down all sorts of, uh, you know, places in the United States, turn turn off the lights here and there. And um, that's what you don't want to happen. I believe they have used cyber attacks in the past, I'm told, against North Korea. But using it against Russia would be very, very Well, we have difficult. used it quite famously, obviously, against Iran to right. take out the, the centrifuges in Operation Olympic Games. But... The um, the bigger issue here is trying to figure out where Putin's lines are. Could he do what Thomas just suggested? Could he go after our uh, power grid? Could he go after the cell phone network? Yes, he could. But what great powers learn in the course of doing cyber attacks is there's a limit beyond which the response could be kinetic. We could come after you as a conventional warfare act. Um, Putin has been very careful here to stay in that gray zone. Uh, he was he was there in Ukraine when he turned off some, the power for just 275,000 Ukrainians, but didn't turn off the whole country. In this case, he has been careful to be operating in areas where you're stealing emails and making them public. But stealing emails is something the United States does as well. It just doesn't make them public. Uh, well, it's interesting. Also, the, the response of Russian officials has sort of shifted. Uh, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, it was a strict denial that they had anything to do with this. Um, this week, instead, Putin said that it was actually irrelevant who stole the emails. What's important is what's in them. Uh, and then the foreign minister, Lavrov, um, said on Wednesday that, you know, the U.S. hadn't proved uh, that Russia had, had, had done this. So it's and he also sort of said, not we a, haven't denied that we've right, done it. It's not right a strict after denial. Putin had denied it. <laughs> and it's interesting, too. What is going on here? Are they trying to swing the election, as some allege, to their, their favorite guy, Trump, who speaks highly of Vladimir Putin? Are they just trying to undermine American democracy, which most people think, just to embarrass the Americans? Say, listen, you criticize me, you criticize the Russians. Look at your own dirty laundry, which I'm hanging up on the line for you, just like he's trying to undermine NATO. That's what most people think is going on here. Tom Bowman, he's Pentagon correspondent for NPR. Yagani Torbati is a reporter with Reuters covering foreign policy. David Sanger is national security correspondent for The New York Times. When we come back, we'll talk more about WikiLeaks and what's going on. Stay with us.
And welcome back. In regard to those WikiLeaks, and certainly people assume Julian Assange is behind that, um, David Sanger, why does Julian Assange dislike Hillary Clinton so much? Well, you know, Diane, there's, there's a great confluence of interests here, and it's why does Assange dislike Hillary Clinton, and why does Vladimir Putin dislike Hillary Clinton? So let's take the second one first, because it, it leads you there. Putin believes that in the 2011 elections in Russia, when Hillary Clinton issued a statement and made several public comments suggesting that the election had basically been fixed to get Putin's party more solidly into the Russian parliament, that that led to street protests in Moscow, which Putin put down very quickly. But it turns out Vladimir Putin doesn't really like street protests in Russia. And uh, he went and, and uh, his uh, prime minister, Medvedev, went and complained to the Americans quite directly uh, about Hillary Clinton's interference in the election. So answer number one may simply be, while we think this is new, they think it's revenge. OK, so then let's take us that takes us to Assange. Assange's big release of WikiLeaks documents, the State Department cables and the Pentagon cables, came out in 2010. Secretary Clinton was, was Secretary of State at the time. She condemned it. She maintained that he had uh, uh, harmed American diplomacy for a generation. I think that was a bit of an overstatement. He believes that the United States uh, is out to get him and is behind criminal prosecutions. That may well be the case. He's taken refuge, as you know, in London in the Ecuadorian embassy. And so he sees Hillary Clinton as the personification of what he was trying to expose in 2010. When you read the State Department cables, what did you discover? And I was part of the Times project that went through all 250,000 of them. You discovered American diplomats were by and large doing what they said they were doing. Interesting. So, a little bit of history, a little bit of context, which is what we hope to bring you. Here's a question regarding Yemen, and that is why the U.S. is now firing on a Yemen stronghold. Because that stronghold was firing on the U.S. ship, the USS Mason, on two occasions over the past week. Uh, some missiles were fired from the shore. Um, I'm told that maybe one of the missiles was actually uh, shot down by the USS Mason. The others may have fall, fallen harmlessly into the sea. And as a result of those attacks, and there was also an attack on an Emirati vessel as well that was disabled during the past week or so, the United States fired back from the USS Paul, uh, Nitsa and uh, struck three radar locations on the Red Sea coast of Yemen, took them out. Um, they were in remote areas, and the U.S. says there is no uh, chance for any civilian casualties. So uh, the question is, what happens next? Yeah. Do the rebels actually do something more to attack shipping in those sea lanes, those very important sea lanes going through the Red Sea, do they hit the U.S. somehow? Um, we'll just have to see what happens. But the U.S. said, listen, we're not going to get deeply involved in this in this war. Basically, this was a, a self-defense effort, a limited self-defense effort. Haven't I heard that message uh, previously? Oh, God. 
Right. So this is a, kind of a, a dangerous point for the United States if it's not looking to get involved um, in Yemen. And, and the context here, of course, is that um, the whole Saudi-led campaign in Yemen has been very problematic. Uh, there have been about 4,000 civilian deaths so far since the campaign started in March 2015. The U.S. has been helping with both um, in intelligence sharing to, to find sites um, but and also refueling. Um, now, there was a really strong statement um, put out by the White House on Saturday after um, airstrikes hit a funeral procession, funeral hall in, in Yemen, killing, um, you know, hundreds of people, uh, killing and injuring hundreds of people. Um, and they said that, you know, the U.S. support for the campaign does not come, uh, is, is on a blank check. Um, now, the problem is, though, that Yemenis may see things differently now that the U.S. is engaged actually in direct strikes on Houthi-held areas. So how much of a naval presence does the U.S. have there? Uh, well, again, they're providing logistic support. They're refueling uh, Saudi aircraft. They're providing intelligence support. They're not actually picking targets. That's done by the Saudis, but we believe reportedly they're basically saying these are no strike areas that you shouldn't hit. But clearly that hasn't worked. The the Saudis, as we know now, over the past week hit a uh, funeral hall, funeral uh, uh, in uh, that killed 140 people, injured more than 500. And again, as you know, we hear that um, 4,000 civilians have died in this effort. Now this whole Everett was supposed to prevent the Houthi rebels from crossing into the Saudi territory to secure their border. But clearly, over the past you know, year and a half now, the Saudis have moved much deeper into Yemen and in a full-scale war now. And we are there to support, protect the Saudis? Well, we are there to some degree to support the Saudis, but we're also there to beat back the Iranians to some degree. I mean, this is more than anything else a, a proxy war. Um, again, you, you used just to use the word war. Right. And, that's right, I did. And it is a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians to a great degree. They don't want Iranian backed forces right on their border. Uh, and that's why this is such a, a, a dangerous sort of moment for the United States. The U.S. position has been keep some removed from this, provide the uh, refueling uh, that uh, was just described because the Saudis can't do that by themselves, but don't get directly involved. Mm -hmm. Now, where does that where does that line get drawn? It gets drawn when you take a shot at an American naval ship because that can't go unresponded to. Yeah, got it. And uh, we saw an announcement from the Iranian government that um, they had moved two, uh, two ships to the Bab al-Mandab Strait, that, that kind of very tight area um, uh, near Yemen. Um, now, those ships, they said, had been moved there from October 5th, um, but they made the announcement uh, after the, the U.S. had uh, struck the Houthi area. So it could be sort of a signaling that, you know, they're also the Iranians are also there to protect their allies. But that never is a good thing when you have Iranian ships near U.S. ships. It could be miscalculation. There could be, you know, something happens. So... That's not a good development. All right. Let's open the phones first to Eric in Manassas, Virginia. You're on the air. Oh, thank you. Um, my point is, why should we even, I know it's going to sound like an awful question, but why should we even care about what goes on in Syria? It seems to me that the Russians haven't learned a thing from our involvement in the Middle East, which has been nothing but a pretty much a bloody quagmire. If anything, let the Russians have it and um, watch them basically do what we have done over the last 
30 years, which is basically bleed. But Which sounds cruel, I understand. But it doesn't seem like they've even paid attention to anything we've tried to do over the last 30 years. Honey. I think, um, you know, I, I understand the caller's point. Um, the thing with a, a situation like Syria is that it does have national security ramifications for the U.S. Um, the Syrian refugee crisis is pushing millions of people into Europe. Um, there are questions. I mean, the, the the advent of ISIS was, you know, came about uh, in part because of the instability in Syria, and they were able to find a home there. ISIS has now attacked uh, U.S. allies. It's kidnapped journalists and, and, and killed them very publicly. This does have national security ramifications. It's not a problem that has, has just been confined to Syria. Well, I think that the caller gets at two big issues. One is, should we be in Syria at all? And then that second one that that gets to is, if so, what is our mission? Our mission right now is pretty much limited to ISIS, as Yagane seemed to suggest. ISIS is in Iraq. ISIS is in Syria and a few other places. And that's where most of the mission is. But the caller raises sort of a more basic question. Um, Why not do what Donald Trump was arguing earlier in the campaign? Just pull everybody out. It's a big mess. Let them sort it out. In the Syria case, there are three reasons. There's a humanitarian reason, a strategic reason, and then a destabilization of the allies reason. The humanitarian reason is pretty clear. I mean, if we're sitting around watching uh, what is approaching a genocide here, and half a, nearly half a million people killed, we're getting up near, you know, we're half a Rwanda at this point. Um, the strategic reason um, If Syria becomes a Russian and Iranian stronghold, that definitely affects the dynamic within the Middle East. And if you, you know, what's the main, the main lesson that we've learned in the Middle East is they don't play by Las Vegas rules, right? What happens there does not stay there. And the third one, of course, is as these refugees come into Europe, it's been destabilizing some of our of our closest allies. Absolutely. That's right. And clearly Russia right now is in the prime position. They are back in the Middle East. They have stabilized Syria. Um, and that does that's not going to change. They're only going to get more emboldened as, the, again, Aleppo falls. And um, you, it, But clearly, the U.S., their only role there right now, and they'll say this publicly, is to defeat ISIS. Initially, they said Assad has to go. And then Kerry said, well, he doesn't have to go today or next month or whenever. That was his comment. So um, it, it is to go after ISIS, and General Joe Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, says the centerpiece for ISIS is the caliphate itself. You have to destroy the caliphate, and right now their headquarters is in Iraq. So there are reasons for being in Syria, the humanitarian reason, the strategic reason, and to take out ISIS. All right. To uh, Stephen in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my question is, uh, in relation to the hacked DNC emails, isn't it possible that Russia or whoever hacked into the DNC emails um, could manipulate the contents, and um, wouldn't that then be considered propaganda? This is a classic in- Russian information war kind of technique in which you start by releasing completely true information. And then the next batch is also true, and the third one's got a few manipulated elements in it so that it gets much harder for people to deny it by saying, well, yeah, all the rest was true, but not these three. So far, 
we have not seen an example, or at least I haven't seen an example, of data manipulation here. It's also a big issue if you are worried about the November 8th election, where, again, the two ways that hackers could disrupt are either in deleting registration roles so that, you know, people show up and they say, I just registered two months ago, and they say, we're terribly sorry, Diane, but we don't have a record of you here, and then you've got to do a provisional ballot, and it gets messy. And the second is the concern about data manipulation as the results are transmitted. That's a harder thing to get at, but not not impossible. Pretty scary stuff. Do you want to make a brief No, that, they're, they're clearly the big concern here is not the, 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 ha- the release of the hacked uh, emails, but also the electoral system. Can they damage that? People say, no, it's, it's so, you know, there's so many systems or 50 systems, it's hard to hack into all of them. And Homeland Security is going to work with the states to make sure they're, they're hardened. Tom Boatman of NPR, and you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. And let's go to Jacob here in Washington, D.C. You're on the air. All right. Uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for taking my call. Uh, actually, my uh, my question is, uh, I think that is the core of the conflict I, uh, so far I, I, I remember. Uh, I mean, lately. Who voted? Uh, I, I, I need answer from uh, your guesses. Who voted in the world arena to have the United States to have a final, a, a final say to decide who is good and who is bad? Because this is the core of all conflicts. Because United States decide the, if, uh, somebody must go, somebody must mean just like uh, we have the conflict in, uh, in, 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 in Syria. So uh, can you give me an answer? For this question, please. Tom Bowman. Well, I think you could say someone is bad if someone's targeting hospitals and killing, you know, up to half a million civilians and being a brutal dictator. I, I don't think that's a judgment call. I think that's pretty clear. You know, if the United States is deciding who stays and who goes in Syria and elsewhere, we're not doing a terribly good job of it. I mean, That's for sure. <laughs> okay, so President Obama went out into the Rose Garden in 2011, and he said Assad has got to leave. Okay, what wasn't there was nothing. He didn't say how he was going to have to leave. He was suggesting that if the Arab Spring kept on, he should go out that way. Well, here we are five years later, and when I look around, Assad looks like he's still there. Yeah, for sure. All right, and let's see to Keith in Portsmouth, Arkansas. You're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, yeah, my question is uh, I was watching the first presidential debate, and um, when the issues of the cybersecurity came up, I noticed that Donald Trump in particular seemed to have a lack of an actual policy on it, and he gave his anecdote about his relative who uh, said that he thinks he could basically operate a computer better than him, and I just got concerned about our uh, future with cybersecurity. So I was wondering if there were any other candidates who had an actual policy lined out to uh, increase our cyber defense in the future. Well, um, I've done two interviews with Mr. Trump, and I've raised cyber with both of them, and I haven't gotten anything particularly um, detailed in what he would do. And, yeah, he was referring at that point, to I think, to his 10-year-old son. Um, and uh, in the Clinton campaign, 
you have seen a series of statements, if you go on the website, about what their cybersecurity plan would be. But this is essentially an extension of what the Obama administration's doing already. I think what we have learned from the Russia experience is that the core question that we were just discussing earlier, which is how do you deter cyber attacks, we are not very much further along on than we were at the beginning of the Obama administration, which is to say they built up a lot of structure. The NSA is much more sophisticated now. Department of Homeland Security has built up a lot. But on the fundamental strategy, we're still not really there. How come? Go ahead. Well, one of the key, uh, one of the ways in which the Obama administration wanted to uh, kind of uh, combat cyber attacks and deter them was through these sanctions. Um, the problem is that it's it's very difficult to sanction, uh, to, to trace back a specific cyber attack to a government entity. It could be kind of independent actors who are maybe paid by the government or, you know, in some way linked to the government. But it's very hard to blame uh, a specific cyber attack on on a specific entity that you can then sanction. And so it's 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 difficult to sort of like lay out that punishment. You got Turbati. She is a reporter with Reuters covering foreign policy. Short break here and when we come back we'll talk about the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew and how Haiti is faring. And welcome back to the International Hour of our Friday News Roundup. This week with Tom Bowman of NPR, Yagani Torbati of Reuters, and David Sanger. He's with the New York Times and is the author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars, and Surprising Use of American Power. Let's go to George in Indianapolis, Indiana. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. My question was about um, Aleppo, and isolationism hasn't always served the United States well, and I understand the reluctance to commit American troops in yet another uh, Mideast conflict, but I feel like it would be a blotch on uh, Obama's legacy if he didn't do something about Aleppo. And what I'm suggesting is a no-fly zone, even unilaterally, um, to send a message to the Russians that they can't keep um, doing what they're doing. Yeah, Ghani. Right. I mean, this is an option that's been considered, and it's been an option that um, you know Hillary Clinton has also talked about. Uh, what what military uh, planners and experts say is that it even in just a no fly zone, which maybe sounds like not doing a whole lot, and it sounds like it could be at least a minimal step. That does take a lot of uh, U.S. troops um, or at least U.S. assets to enforce. It's it's not quite as simple as it sounds. That's what the Obama administration at least would say. Right. They have been talking about this for years, a no fly zone. But with the situation in Aleppo now, I'm not sure what you would gain by having a no-fly zone. You could prevent the Russians and the Syrians from flying there from bombing, but then you would have to have some people on the ground as well to provide humanitarian aid. Who would do that? That's another question. 
You also have to uh, remember that if um, you were had the option of a no-fly zone prior to the Russian entry into the war a year ago, um, you probably don't really have it now. Because uh, a year ago, the United States would have been the only one up with significant air assets. And had the Syrians gone up to challenge that with their own air force, it would have been a pretty short fight. But going up and running the risk of running into Russian pilots and then having to make the decision, do you shoot down a Russian plane because it's violated your definition of the no-fly zone, you're suddenly in a much bigger and more complex problem. And there's also continued talk about taking out Syrian aircraft on the ground. You could do that from missiles fired from the Mediterranean. But then the question would be, you take out all the Syrian aircraft, you still have the Russian aircraft. And to Liam in Milford, New Hampshire, you're on the air. Good morning, Diane. Um, I just had a question and a comment. Um, first, a comment. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people tend to underestimate just the sheer complexity of the situation in Syria, you know, with all of the, the different countries and interests involved. Um, but I, I think that one of the biggest issues the U.S. has is that we haven't, we don't have a defined strategy, it looks like. Um, one, one of your panels said that, you know, Obama said a couple months ago that, um, you know, Assad has to go, but then he doesn't have to go or he has to go soon. And um, I was just wondering, and I understand that reluctance, you know, I think a lot of people are reluctant to have another break it, you got it situation like with Iraq. But I was just wondering if your panel might want to weigh in um, on what they personally think um, if the U.S. were to commit to sort of a direct strategy and some goals, what that might look like. Tom. Uh, well, I mean, you have to go back four or five years to the time when the entire national security establishment said arm and train the rebels, give them, you know, very heavy firepower to Too use late. as leverage. <laughs> and that was not done. So now you're kind of playing catch up. We've been talking the whole show about Aleppo. You're getting toward the end game. There's really not much you can do at this point. And clearly everybody realizes this is very complex. But if you're not going to have leverage, as Secretary Kerry complained about, on that tape talking to, you know, Syrian operatives that I argued for military force. I lost that argument. At this point, there's very little you can do. And actually, President Obama is meeting with his National Security Council today to weigh, um, you know, what possible military options there are when it comes to Syria. You know, they could uh, strike some Syrian bases. They could strike munitions depots. Um, but then we're also told that maybe he might not decide anything and he might take a middle option, which is to maybe allow U.S. allies to ship more and different kinds of weapons to Syrian rebels. But but, but again, if you strike Syrian bases and Syrian aircraft at this point in the game, you still have the Russians flying exactly. and dropping bombs. It's not going to get you anything. Yeah. And the rebels, as they exist today, are not exactly as they existed when this issue came up four years ago. They're much more integrated now with other groups, including al-Nusra and others, that uh, are inimical to uh, American interests. So uh, President Obama's concern from the beginning was, how do we know that the rebel groups that we are supporting will ultimately be operating in our interests. And, you know, we went through this in Afghanistan, and we uh, ended up discovering that people we were supporting as um, as uh, the opposition that was on our side then became al-Qaeda later on. All right. I want to ask you all about Haiti, which is still reeling from the devastation of Hurricane Matthew. How is the aid effort going on? You got it. 
So we have aid coming into the capital. The problem is that this, the, the worst hit part of Haiti was the southwestern tip um, and the bridge that uh, connects the capital to that uh, uh, that that area collapsed uh, as part of the hurricane. And so, um, you know, it's been very difficult to get aid in. It's been getting in through ships and through helicopters, um, but it's been pretty slow going. Um, and so now you're seeing a lot of concerns raised about possible cholera um, spreading. There have been a few cases. Um, and then, of course, we remember after the earthquakes in 2000, and ten, you know, ten thousand people died from cholera, um, so that is uh, that's a, it's a big concern, and, and, and you know, the doctors there are working to to get that aid through, but it's just a logistical challenge. It's very difficult, and they were just kind of you know getting back on their feet after the earthquake five years ago, and in a place like Haiti with such dire poverty, they just it's very hard for them to um, you know survive something like this when you know their, their shacks are just wiped out by a hurricane I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people are without any kind of shelter at all and um, that again you know with the the sewage mixing with your well water your, there's a cholera threat and there is uh, are some cases of cholera now and you're right the uh, the Navy sent down two ships with a, a good amount of aid some heavy lift helicopters but in a place like Haiti that is in such bad shape with the roads washed mm-hmm. out as well. Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard to quickly get that aid out there. And it's a, it's a you know, horrible situation. I mean, even before the hurricane, just some statistics, uh, one in three Haitians had access to proper latrines. Uh, three in five had access to safe water. Uh, so you can really see the, the elements of a cholera crisis kind of brewing there. And let's talk for a moment about the South Korean company, Samsung. David Sanger, a huge recall uh, of its uh, Note 7 phones that had been a big hit for the company, and now what's going to happen? Well, this um, this hits Samsung hard because uh, they were actually doing pretty well a year ago versus Apple. Uh, and if you don't believe it, look at what ha- what's happened to Apple stock since the Samsung uh, batteries began to self-immolate. Um, now, Samsung itself, it, its size and its political power inside South Korea can't be overestimated. I used to cover South Korea when I was based in in Japan, and it's a huge chunk of the South Korean economy, Uh, not just the cell phone part of it, which is a, a significant business, but all of the other Samsung enterprises. And uh, you're now seeing a, a hit not only to their uh, ability to go compete with Apple, but you're seeing reputational effect to all of the Samsung brands. And this isn't the only quality control problem they've had, so uh, uh, other products are beginning to get examined as well. Well, they call uh, Samsung, the, they call Korea, rather, South Korea, the Republic of Samsung, huge part of their economy, I think 20% of their GDP. So, you know, how this turns out for the company could have huge impacts in the economy of South Korea. It also, I think, raises deeper questions for the South Koreans as to the role of these sort of family-owned conglomerates uh, in their economy. Samsung is one of them. LG's another. They're, you know, the big South Korean brands that we know are part of these huge uh, businesses, these conglomerates that really have a huge impact. And so I think if you're, uh, you know, a regular Korean, you kind of start questioning, well, um, do we need to, de- should we be depending so much on one of these uh, companies? And if they have a bad uh, incident, like the the note, you know, it, it, it can potentially like have serious ramifications. 
ramifications for the entire economy. But we do know that companies can bounce back. How likely is Samsung to do oh, so? Look, I don't think this is fatal to the company, but it takes them a long time, just as it took you know, uh, when the Tylenol uh, crisis happened or you've seen uh, other crises involving automobile recalls and so forth. So they'll get this solved. But in the meantime, they're going to lose a lot of market share. And, uh, you know, Yanni's right that to the South Koreans, you know, there's been almost no political challenge to the Chebol, these big corporate conglomerates. And when there isn't that kind of challenge and internal um, uh, criticism and competition, it allows things like this to happen because uh, they they get an air of infallibility about them. David Sanger at the New York Times. He is the national security correspondent for that newspaper. And you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. And let's take a call from Fayetteville, Arkansas. You're on the air. Tucker? Hi. I was uh, just wanting to know how we can justify being in the Middle East considering how many proxy wars we're doing. We're doing a proxy war against Iran and Yemen. We're doing a proxy war against Russia and Syria. And it really doesn't make any sense because in Yemen we're allied with the Iranian or uh, the Saudi Arabians who are predominantly followers of Wahhabism, and in Syria we are supposedly fighting against ISIS when they also are the a big uh, Wahhabism, and it really doesn't make any sense how we can be allies with Iraq, which is Shia. Yet we're pretty much axis against Iran when Iraq and Iran are close allies because they're both Shia. It's a pretty confusing situation, Yagani. Well, I think Tucker's captured really the kind of maze of alliances and rivalries and and, and straight up enmity that, that the U.S. finds itself in when it comes to the Middle East. And this is. You know, President Obama probably has some of those same instincts as, as as Tucker does. He wanted to pivot to Asia and to focus on other um, areas where he felt that, you know, had been had been left behind or had been neglected um, in the Bush administration. Um, and and he and yet he finds himself unable to sort of extricate himself from from the region and extricate the United States. The U.S. has just decided to send uh, more troops to Iraq in order to retake help the Iraqis retake Mosul. Um, that, well, that was the third increase um, in the last six months. Uh, so it, it, you know, it's it's U.S. interest. It's the humanitarian issue. It's the it's wanting to get rid of ISIS, which has been targeting the United States. Those are all the factors that are keeping the U.S. very involved in the Middle East. And finally, the king of Thailand has died. He had an extraordinary relationship with his people, Tom. That's right. Very revered uh, leader. Um a king in in power in on the throne for 70 years a longest serving monarch um and uh again very beloved the 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 heir to the throne i've seen referred to as a jet setting playboy which is sort the of an archaic term prince. crown prince and the concern now is with the the old king gone and the new one coming in um fractures in society you know most of the money in um 
uh, there in Thailand is spent in Bangkok and the surrounding areas, and not much money goes out to the hinterlands. Um, you know, there's a great disparity between the haves and the have-nots, so there's a question of, uh, with the military in control here, you know, can they, um, will they have to put down a rest of population once this new king comes in? Will the, the country just basically fracture? Right. I mean, uh, the the Thai king, obviously, uh, he doesn't have a sort of a political role, but it, it was more of a ceremonial function. But he did serve as sort of a uniting figure, um, you know, throughout uh, Thailand's history in this, this century, which included, you know, military coups, including one in 2014. Um, and the military justifies its intervention in politics really by pointing to, um, you know, defending the monarchy. And so without that kind of revered figure now, uh, how will that dynamic change? It'll be interesting to see. All right. And finally, I think we must note that the Nobel Committee chose Bob Dylan for its Nobel Prize for Literature, creating a fair amount of controversy, uh, David Sanger, among those who feel that uh, the type of literature that Bob Dylan has created in his poetry perhaps did not rise to the level that those who criticize expect from the Nobel Committee. Well, it's it's a remarkable thing because, I mean, here we hear the strains in the back of the music that many of us at this table grew up with, and so I think it brought a warmness to our, our heart. But uh, this this was an unpredictable choice. I mean, you know, you, you hear nominees around and about, and I think when this announcement came out, uh, it was a shock to a lot of people. But I think very refreshing in many ways. You know, this is a Nobel Committee that's been criticized for a lot of things, particularly on the size of the Peace Prize. I don't think you're going to hear much on this one. And it's a good up note on which to end. David Sanger, the New York Times... Yagani Torbati of Reuters, Tom Bowman of NPR. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Diane. Thanks for listening, all. I'm Diane Rain. Senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside region. We'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For oh, the times they are a-changing The mothers and fathers throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. For the times they are changing. The curse it is cast The slow one now Will later be fast As the present now Will later be past The order is rapidly fading And the first one now Will later be last 
for the times they are a-change. 